Welcome to another pint with Shawnee B coming to you from Finnegan's Bar in Dublin. It's in South County, Dublin, a little village called Dorky, which is one of the most picturesque villages in my hometown. Last night I met a very interesting character in another pub in the centre of Dublin, and we are now at just coming up to lunchtime, have agreed to meet, and he is going to share his life story and what he's learned. He is my first guest who hails from the Kashmir region between India and Pakistan. We spent a lot of time trying to guess where he came from last night. <laughs> I managed it somehow. His name was Rafiq Kathwari. Did I get your name right? You did it absolutely right. And it was such a great joy to meet you. And when you guessed the region of my birth, I bought you and your friend you drinks. Did. You bought us drinks because you were surprised that we got there. To yeah, Irish absolutely. <laughs> and not many people do that. What can I tell you about the Valley of Kashmir? It is the most militarized zone in the galaxy. And just like uh, North and South Ireland, Kashmir is one of those regions that the British left unresolved, created that mess there. They left a wake of trouble everywhere they they went. That's the claim to fame. And all empires do that to a large extent. There's a Palestinian poet who said that something always goes wrong in the last 10 minutes of an empire. And if we look even cursorily at history, British had ruled India for over 200 years. Mm -hmm. And the last 10 minutes were the last six months. Carving it up. Carving it up. Britain sent this royal figure uh, to India, never been there. His remit was to divide up the country and get Britain out of India after Second World War. And Kashmir has uh, unfortunately been a bone of contention, to use an overused cliche, between India and Pakistan. And China. Uh, China has it. been gifted a part of Kashmir that Pakistan occupies. It wasn't theirs to gift. Mm-hmm. So that's how these things work. The last 10 minutes of the British Empire were those eight months when they carved up India into India and East Pakistan, which subsequently became Bangladesh. Growing up in Kashmir, I uh, was taught by Irish Jesuits, Catholics from the North, that the Brits sent to South Asia to their missionary establishments. And I wouldn't be talking to you, Sean, had it not been for them. Some of them were very strict. Others endeared themselves to us. And Kashmir is a valley surrounded by the Himalayas. It's been a disputed territory. It has a checkered history. It was gifted by the Brits to the Dogras for helping them defeat the Afghans in the, I believe, the third or the fourth Afghan war in mm-hmm. the 1880s. So before we, uh, that was a very interesting start to our podcast because those of you listening don't even know who Rafiki is. He is a poet who was bestowed the Patrick Kavanagh Prize in Dublin, which is a, a famous poetry award in 2013. He was the first non-Irish national to receive that. And he has spent his life in America, Ireland and Kashmir. So the opening that you just heard there was a bit of background and scene setting on whither Kashmir and what it's all about. What was it like when you were born and growing up there? My family was partitioned. We were separated like so many millions of other families in the Indian subcontinent. We were separated from our two, two older siblings because my father, who was an attorney, a lawyer, 
were very close to Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, and some of the Kashmiri politicians didn't like him. When he went on a visit to Lahore, uh, his permit to return back to Kashmir was cancelled. My grandfather basically sent four siblings and my mother, keeping the two older siblings in Kashmir, which is, I think, the way it works often. And to this day, we are strangers to the really? two older siblings. And I remember growing up in the first 10 years of my life in Pakistan, that the quarrels between my parents were about, my mother wanted all the children to grow up together. And my father, of course, dismissed that and said, oh, they're with the big old man in Kashmir. This is not something uh, exclusive to our family. It happened to millions yeah. of families. It was loosely divided between Hindu and Muslim, right? That became the basis of the division, although Mahatma Gandhi did not want, want that. that. Yeah. And now, of course, history has been rewritten. It has been revised. Some are blaming the... Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was a brilliant barrister, studied in England, and who had vested interests in Bombay. I don't believe that he wanted the division either. It was the Indian National Congress, led by Nehru, did not want to share power. Most of this is controversial, mm. because the Indians won't accept that. There's somebody had written a book about it, which subsequently got banned in India. So mm -hmm. the truth always gets yeah, suppressed. So Ten there. years later, we went back to, to Kashmir, but my father was still a persona non grata. So my mother went through all these separations, first from her oldest children, then from her husband. She was an orphan at the age of 11, and my mother was married to my father when she was 14. She looms very large in my book of poems called yes. In Another Country which is a metaphor for not just geographically delineated countries, but it's also a metaphor for a country within the mind, within her mind, because she started losing her mind. Yes, she had schizophrenia, right? She has schizophrenia. And then my father, he ransacked my mother for six children. He married a widow younger than his oldest daughter. Both my mother and the new wife uh, lived under the same roof. Doesn't happen often, but I think it is somewhat common in South Asia. It happens a lot in the Middle East, I think, doesn't it? It happens a lot in the Middle East, especially what happens is that uh, men, very paternalistic society, which is awful, men often cite the instance where Prophet Muhammad had four wives. Yeah. Prophet Muhammad had four wives because he wanted to unite the tribes in each tribe he went to, he said, oh, I'll marry your daughter, and that became a matter of unity, and now that, of course, is used by many Muslim men as an invocation when necessary. Yeah. You're a well-to-do family? I would, yes. Yeah. A privileged family, I had a very privileged background, right. I don't deny that. But it's also because of privileges, then you become very sheltered. It was only years later that... Uh, I was able to do what I had to do as a stringer for AFP in Kashmir. journalism. In journalism, yeah. when the militancy broke out in 1989, after years of uh, chicanery in the so-called elections that were being held, so it's a it's a complex history. Well, let me just focus on my book of poems. 
in which two figures loom large. It's from a kid's point of view who sees his mother lose her mind. What age were you when she started, when you remember noticing? I was a preteen. Actually, it was never explained to me. I actually thought, oh my God, mum is a strong person. Look at her confront my grandfather, who was a, a very imposing figure, tall, and he liked to dress up in Harris Tweed and smoke a huge Havana. Proud of my mother. It was only after we were in the United States, to which I flew in 1971, 22 years old. My older brother had already been there. That started the process of what we call higher education. Years later, fast forward, after my father died in 1998, my older brother and I decided to bring our mother to the United States right. because it was no longer tenable for her to stay in the same house with the second wife. My mother is 94 years of uh. age. She is in a, a lovely home in the Bronx. And she has carers. Fortunately, my older brother Farouk has a bit of money and he's able to beat the bills. I visit her two, three times a week mm. in New York, where I have now lived for the last 40 years. When you were at home in the early part of your life, you were in a Jesuit school and you were, were you interested in writing and English and all that sort of stuff? <laughs> in the Jesuit school, which was in Srinagar, which is the capital city of Kashmir, it still exists. We were taught mostly English history. We were taught the English language. As a result, of course, we lost the knowledge of our own Urdu language. We played cricket. We went on treks. I'm very proud of the fact that I climbed one of the closest peaks, was 15,000 feet. Wow. It was three days for us. And when we arrived at the peak, lo and behold, a holy man dressed up in a yeah. saffron robe, yeah. cross-legged, and he didn't pay these four kids any attention. And then finally, at some moment, looked out at the, the spectacular the vistas, the other peaks. He said, all the peaks are covered with snow. Why is this one bare? The import of that statement became evident to me what years was, later. Okay, what was the interpretation? We are all hollow vessels. Now we've got to fill it up with snow, fill it up with knowledge. And we've got to read and we've got to write and we've got to learn. The only thing you can steal, steal from, is a library. The library enriches you. And the library, the more you steal, the more the library enriches you. But the whole purpose of education, I think Eliot said that, is humility. The more you know, the more there is to know. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> more, exactly, exactly. Yeah. At least that's a good beginning. I know that I don't know, yeah. going back to the Greeks here. There was always a desire, there's always a wish to leave Kashmir and fly away to this land of milk and honey called the United States. Yeah, we have yeah. it in Ireland as well, of course. Of course, because it's called soft power of yeah. America the movies, Coca-Cola, and, yeah. and of course then grew up listening to the Beatles and yeah. dressing up like them. Those were some of the influences, but at the same time, uh, we were also exposed to our own 
cultural tradition in yeah. terms of kavalis and poetry, poetry gatherings. And so maybe you're going to read some of the, your poems from your book I'll for be delighted us today. To. And maybe one from that is reminiscent of your early life. This actually has a basis in fact. So it's called Reading Lolita in Kashmir. A boy I stole into grandpa's study. An art dealer, he loved books with golden edges, Aristotle to Zola, all stuck together in the humidity. I snuck low out to his black Chevy, rifled for the dirty bits, I guess should have looked harder, steering low away for a spin, teen tunes swirling in my head. I want to hold your hand. We howered over a valley ringed by sharp mountains, white turbans on the peaks, lake dull in the hem, polished by a soft breeze. A paisley-shaped river sobbed through a dazed valley. Amputated tree trunks screamed, reams of Plastic choked icy streams, barbed wire hedged the Shalimar, Toyotas jammed the bazaars, an ancient Sufi shrine oddly gutted, its rich latticework lost. New architecture showed no awe for nature, half-widows wailed, clawed at mass graves yearning for their disappeared. Nightingales sang of joy, not sorrow. At Zero Bridge, lilacs by bunkers bloomed. A lord of the skies, sound boomed. Startled, stray dogs howled in grandpa's shiny Chevy. Lolita slipped from my lap as we finished our foreboding odyssey. I liked it. <laughs> I just wanted to point out to the listeners and yes. to yourself yes. that half-widows are women who do not know whether their husbands are alive or dead. Because after the militancy started, the Indian Army poured in 750,000 troops to control a population of barely 6 million. So there are half-widows. Yeah. Your, your poetry has been sort of described as foreboding and like even that poem, you feel something's about to happen and you're building up a atmosphere, but also you have a mischievous element to your work. Is that fair to say? or I like the fact that you call it mischievous. Yeah, I like it? being mischievous. Yeah, I can I tell like, it. I like being a rebel. Three-fourths of the book is all about my mother and her schizophrenia not yeah. easy to do in poetry uh, is your mother a, a, a sim symbolic of Kashmir in your work listen it's out there okay. <laughs> you I, decide I have my name attached to the poem you can take it whatever from way here you want. to Mars okay and that's up to you I don't own the interpretation yes I only own the title okay and so good poetry should do that's what poetry hopefully does but there is a genre of English literature that deals with for instance mad woman in the attic Jane Eyre is a good example Christopher Smart a 14th century English poet who was confined to a mental asylum in those days wrote this amazing poem 
called Jubilati Agno, in which he uses Noah's Ark as the metaphor. I would urge your listeners and yourself to Google it. Well, I'll have a link to the poem on the... And he also wrote one of the most endearing poems about cats in the English language. Hmm. Let us now consider my cat, Jeffrey. So there is a established genre in, in English literature of people writing about madness, mostly women going mad. Why is it always the women? Because they're the stronger ones, because of paternalism. Even today in the United yeah. States, look what the Republicans are doing. Yeah. In Tunisia, predominantly Muslim country, the Muslim front came to power, and one of the first things they did was ban abortions. Remarkable thing happened. 400,000 women came out in the streets, some with hijabs, some with bob cuts, and protested. They brought the government down, and the government had the good sense to resign. These things can happen yes. that women are taking over. We have the same situation in Ireland with repeal the 8th. Right I know. Now as you're, let's keep the timeline on your life. You got out of the Jesuit school and into college in Kashmir? Yeah. I did my bachelor's in Kashmir. And after my bachelor's, a remarkable thing happened. We had three or four movie uh, film uh, houses in Kashmir. In 1966 or 67, one of them showed this remarkable film called The Battle of Algiers. It's a classic. Because of the prevailing political situation in Kashmir, of course, there was an immediate link with the fight for independence. Yeah. Which, uh, the Battle of Algiers is, of course, Algerian independence yeah. from France. After so many years now, that movie is being shown to functionaries in the State Department and the CIA. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. So we awesome. saw that movie and a group of our students said, if the Algerian resistance can organize themselves in the pyramidal structure, so can we. And we started doing that in our innocence. We left a paper trail. And that came to the attention of the principal of the college, and he had his own axe to grind. He picked up the phone and called up the police, and the police announced that they had captured a, a Pakistani conspiracy and put eight or ten of us in jail. Really? So, and you were only kind of messing? Um, we were messing. We had no idea where we got the <laughs> It was a passion. Yes. But they have to start somewhere, these things. Exactly. So yeah. actually, we were one of the very first groups to do this. Mm. So I was, what, maybe 20. We ended up and we spent 11 months as the guest of the state. Did you really? It was in that jail that I was exposed to some very heavy literature, like Dostoevsky right. and Tolstoy. We learned to play bridge and chess. You also learn to pray five times a day, right. and all that kind of stuff. So when we were released, things became difficult for me and the other people who were with me because we were let uh, let go on parole. So my father said, yeah, it's going to be very difficult for you to go here. Here's a one-way ticket to New York. So that's why you went to America. You were kind of run my, out of my, town. My older, my older brother was already there. Yeah. The rest is history. So you were in danger. You, you were... You were Another danger now, now there are over 80,000 people dead. Did there you have regrets, though, in your life looking back that you didn't? I can't do it again, accepting that I'll be more careful, I won't need a paper trail. Yeah. You arrived then in America. Yep. 
as a sort of a fugitive, semi-fugitive? Not really. No. Not really. I won't say that. I just want to also point out that if I had a chance to do it all over again, I'll do it with the power of the words. Yes. Power of poetry, because words can be powerful if used cleverly. Yeah. It's a huge part of our tradition in our fight. In Ireland, with O'Casey and, and oh my God. all I these mean, guys who uh, the, picked up the, the pen instead the of the partition of Ireland. The I think that's one reason why you have so many Nobel laureates here. Yeah, not just because of the weather. No, exactly right. I mean, it's why it's why, for example, when you look at the Irish versus the Scottish, that we do have a much richer literary tradition because people were using literature to fight in many ways, and same in India as well. Of course, in Kashmir, same thing. We yeah. have a very rich poetic tradition, Sufi poetry, as well as political poetry. Your brother was a, a tycoon by the time you were over there, would that be fair to say? No, he wasn't a tycoon no? at that time. He was on his way to becoming right. a tycoon. He had it in him. To, uh, when I arrived, we were living in a one-room apartment in Brooklyn. He was at that time working for, I believe, Beer Stearns or something okay. like that. His is a different story, mm. a remarkable story. I worked with him for 18 years. It was difficult. So is he my brother? Is he my boss? Is he my father? <laughs> so now I have a fairly good relationship with him as a sibling. He knew exactly what he wanted and he put his mind to it. So he looms large in, in your book. Too. book. So you went to America to work with him? I went to America 22 to, first of all, get away from Kashmir. Secondly, when I arrived there, of course, uh, 15 days later, I was working in a dry cleaning store, trying to earn some money. Went to evening classes at the new school, formed by a group of German intellectuals who fled Nazi Germany and aligned themselves with the University of Chicago until they raised a bit of money and they formed this school called the New School for Social Research, which was heavily oriented towards Marxism and socialism. Yeah. And you had giants teaching there. Right. Had you written your first poetry at this stage or were you... Okay, this is how this poetry came about. It was always within me. There was a tearing apart happening within because of my mother was back in Kashmir and my father. And he, he took on a new wife in the mid-1970. That tore us apart even further because, uh, as I saw it, he was displacing my mother's position. It was crazy until one day I was luckily sent by a friend to a writing workshop in the village run by a woman called Susan Shapiro. She's now written about 10 books teaches at NYU, Columbia, and the New School. And Susan opened up her apartment every Tuesday night. A group of these 15 people who showed up regularly. And these were the most ruthless editors right. and readers. So you went in there with a two-page, what you thought was a poem, and you walked home with four lines. And you left your emotions Picked uh, up your heart on the way out. <laughs> parquet floor. Yeah. That's where it all started for right. me. For 10 or 11 years, every Tuesday night. Really? So you were, uh, during the week, you were writing away, though, yourself. And then well, that, that spurred you on. Right. And I was working at the same time. At the new school, somebody introduced me to this classic book called The Destruction of the European Jewry by Raoul Hilberg. 
it describes what Hannah Arendt calls the banality of evil, of how the bureaucracy was set up to transport the Jews from the cities by rail yeah. into these concentration camps. Raoul Hilberg opened up my mind. I had no idea this was going this had happened in the world because as I mentioned to you previously, I brought up in a shelter. So you had no idea the Holocaust happened? No idea at right. all. This was not even taught in school. But uh, then I went to a reading where Allen Ginsberg was giving a reading. So the only space I could find was in the back near the railing, the banister. Alan came on, tapped on the mic, and he says, Can you hear me back there? And the guy standing next to me said, Howl! <laughs> Hearing Alan Ginsberg did something else to me. Right. It just taught me, oh, wow, 95% of life, as Woody Allen says, is showing up. I'm glad I came to this poetry reading and subsequently I picked up Howell and I later discovered that his mother was also schizophrenic that established a connection that I couldn't get enough of Ellen Ginsberg. As a poet, you can't learn much from Ellen Ginsberg in terms of style and structure, and although you can. Ellen was raw. And then, um, after obtaining my first master's, which took five years instead of two, well, let's have one more poem before we go into the next chapter. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. This is a homage to Ellen Ginsberg. Okay. Now, this is where my sensibilities also became very... I saw what was happening in Palestine. That developed a certain political consciousness about justice, injustice. And this poem is one of the very first examples of that. This was a much longer poem, but at Sue Shapiro's workshop, they said these four lines, you can't do any better than this. The poem was triggered by, and I think triggered is the right word, by a headline in the local throwaway paper we have in New York, called the New York Times. <laughs> so the headline said, Israeli patrols kill 90 dogs in Arab town. The New York Times April 14, 1995. And here's my response to it. Mother, I'm living in sin with an Egyptian Jew raised in Paris. We stroll in Central Park, Armat Gaulois, off the leash. How lucky he is not in Hebron, where gods kill dogs for sport. I wandered into the, uh, into the wilderness of American uh, imperialism, of American corporate uh, yeah, life, the, the casino that we call Wall Street. Yeah. I met a woman in New York who is British of Kenyan descent. We married and then she was headhunted for a job here in Dublin, which is what brought me down here, which made me qualify for this price. My wife, Tabish, said, apply, 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 apply. Just send me a 20 poem. And actually, it was she who then drove to Inneskeen to submit the papers. And they accepted it. You won. Months later, uh, I was actually driving. So <laughs> while I was on the road, the call came from uh, the adjudicator, Brian Lynch. He said, are you lucky? Yes, well, you know, I'm Brian Lynch. And this year, uh, I'm going to give you the award because I'm just blown away by what you're in. It's lovely. And uh, that was it. 
What year did you come to Dublin, to Ireland? 202. Just how at you like the it? end of the boom. The, the boom. middle of the boom. I know. The I middle left, of the yeah. boom years. Did you like Ireland when you got here? I loved it. The opportunity came up to buy this cottage in County Louth with the benefit of hindsight. Was the wrong decision. It took us away from Dublin and all yeah. that stuff. And there were some pressures and marriage didn't work out, but we're still very, very, very good friends, very close. You still to each other. hang out together? You still live? We do. Right. In New York. She's in New York uh, trying to get her American citizenship. She's right. British. She just regrets the fact that while she was in Ireland, she could have applied for Irish citizenship. It's a good thing to have these days. She's looking for a nice Irish charming man. <laughs> if they exist. They do exist. Of course they do. So that's how what brought me to Ireland. I'm still here. Still have contact. Still have some lovely friends. And all you need is three or four friends. That's all. Uh, you're one of them, of course. Thank and you. Four. And I've <laughs> yes. represented Ireland in Hyderabad, in Karachi, in New Delhi, in my own hometown of Kashmir. And now I've been invited to represent Ireland in Goa. In a poetry... In poetry reading readings, or whatever. Right. And m- most of it I do it on my own expense. Just once the literature exchange at Trinity uh, gave me a little bit of money to go to Hyderabad. And while I'm there, I, of course, get an opportunity to go up to Kashmir and see my brother and my sister and their family. Last question for you. What would you say to your younger self um, if you're looking back on your life? There are certain things that happened in my younger self that defined the future years. One was when a pet lamb was sacrificed. Uh, that impacted the rest of my life. How can people be so cruel? Your own parents. The second one was when I saw my grandfather fondle his uh, granddaughters. Okay, and that totally destroyed my ability to have a healthy relationship with women because Later on, I realized that women were for strong men, not for me, I'm a weak man. So women were to be enjoyed by strong men. So so that's something I would try to tell my uh, younger self. Maybe perhaps I should have learned to speak up or something like that. So it's a good question. I'll think about it, write a poem and send it to you. Very good. Thank you for taking so much time. It's just such a privilege. And can we li- can we finish on maybe one of those poems from your from your book in another country? My homage to Patrick Kavanagh. Let's finish with that. That'll yeah, be fantastic. I mean, that's appropriate. So this is my homage to Patrick Kavanagh. It's called Veracity. May I borrow your donkey? A neighbor asked Kavanagh, who said, oh, I'm so sorry I loaned out my donkey yesterday. At that moment, the donkey brayed in the barn, and the neighbor believing the donkey made Kavanagh a liar said, So what is that I hear? And Kavanagh replied, Friend, are you going to believe me or a donkey? Rafiq, thank you so much for being on a pint with Shawnee. It's a privilege. Thanks for having me.